Colossians chapter 3, verse 13, listen to the word of the Lord, bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were called in the one body, and be thankful. This is the word of the Lord. So he's finished saying in the previous verses that there's one, uh, one measurement, there's, there's one way, there's one means by which everybody comes to God and it's Jesus. And Jesus levels the playing field. No longer the distinctions between races, no longer the distinctions between genders, no longer the distinctions that the world uses to cut up society. They're eliminated in Christ. Everyone comes to God through Christ. I have friends that think everyone is in Christ. Uh, They're wrong. That's actually heresy. You can smile and say that. I have friends that think everyone's going to heaven because Jesus died for everyone. Uh, That's not true. You have to repent and trust in Jesus. You have to allow him in. He's not going to force you to heaven. He's not going to put you somewhere you choose not to be. There's a lot of folk, they would be miserable in heaven. And uh, they would hate God. Heaven's not for the people who believe the right things. Heaven's for people who love God. I don't know why I'm saying that. I guess what I'm saying is sometimes what I've heard is such sloppy reasoning where people say that Christ died for all. And so Christ is all and is in all in this kind of, in, in this passage, they would take that and they would take it places Paul would have never said, ne- would have never taken it. Oh, he's in everyone, everywhere, regardless of what they believe. Oh, cool. Shoo, that relieves the tension for me. Uh, no, you can't take a verse out of context and take it against the clear meanings of the other text. You got to take everything together. So for those who are in Christ, we have become one new people, one new people. And then in the new body, in the new people God's creating, Paul envisions what is going to be required for us to be the expression of God's kingdom on the earth. And so last week we looked at the humility and the meekness and the gentleness and all that stuff. And then we get to this one, bear with one another. Interesting verse, right? Bear with one another. Being patient with each other. Now, why would he have to say that? Why would he have to say, bear with one another, and if anyone has a grievance or a complaint, forgive? Let, let's just imagine, if, if we could, let's pretend this is just practical. Let's say Carrie and I get married. Are we the same sort of person? And those differences... What's pretty natural when you get real close to someone who's not like you? They don't think like you, act like you, walk like you, have sleeping patterns like you, don't fold socks like you. Nothing's the same. Man, I distinctly remember the first several years of marriage. I'm telling myself a little bit since I said marriage shouldn't be that hard. First couple years of marriage, I look back and I, and I, I remember a couple of conversations I had with my buddy Sam in which I just utterly complained with deep anger in my heart about how she is. 
She just does things so different from me. Now, I'm not even yet talking about the issue of sinning against each other. Who here hasn't sinned in a couple months? There's only one hand up, and it's the only hand I see is a sarcastic hand. So, so not only are we not the same kind of people, and when people are different from you, you tend to think that your way of doing it is right, and their way of doing it is wrong, and you get on each other's nerves. How's come you aren't? Yeah. Get on the same page. Mine. Me. Quit annoying me by being the way you are. And so, uh, so I'm glad to say that something has shifted in our marriage. Definitely, I don't call anyone on the phone to complain about my wife anymore. It's been a lot of years since I had any of those kind of conversations. I really must have changed her, right? Some changed. And you know what changed? My attitude changed. This is such a big deal. We're different kind of people, so we need to learn to honor the differences, not just tolerate the differences. There's a certain level of tolerating each other's differences that needs to happen. But when you can move past tolerating each other's differences to celebrating each other's differences, that's a major sign of growth. Major. But Paul here is saying, you're going to have to bear with one another because you're not the same kind of person for one. That's not even with sin in the picture. Just with d- divine design in the picture, you're going to annoy each other. Have you ever seen apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors talk about the same gospel? They don't talk about it like it's the same gospel at all. The apostles have a way different. To an evangelist, there's only one priority, and it's the only priority in the whole universe, and it's getting people saved. The prophets only have one priority, and it's hearing God's voice and obeying what he said. Right? The pastors only have one priority, and it's making sure everyone feels included and loved and safe. Right? And the apostles want to see the forward progress of the kingdom. We want to see the healings. We want to see the kingdom. We want to see conversions. We want to see transformation of cultures and communities. And, it's, and, and that, is the, that is the gospel. You ask the teachers, the teachers. Oh, my word, the teachers. They'll tell you 16 things you said wrong so far today in your doctrine. Because truth, truth, truth is all that matters. If we could just get sound doctrine, we could get the church saved. We can get everything fixed, right? Now, none of those things had to do with sin, did they? They just had to do with grace. The grace you've been given, what a charismatic will call an anointing, you know what it actually functions and feels like in real life? It's a mindset. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, we say, oh, power is on you. Well, for what? How does that manifest? How does that take shape? You think a certain way. If you have a gift of hospitality from the Holy Spirit, you think, you notice, ooh, look, they don't feel, I don't think, I don't know if anyone greeted them yet. I can't believe we're all in a circle talking and laughing. That person is all by themselves. They're a new visitor. What are we doing? We're the worst church ever. I got to go complain to the pastor. Pastor, how come nobody's following up and sending cards? And I'm like, I, that you, you can, can you do that? Could you do that? Since you clearly have the grace from the Holy Spirit to do that. Or I guess you could judge me for not doing that. That's another option. But see how the grace we've been given creates opportunity to rub each other wrong? And we haven't even talked about sin yet. Now let's take sin into account. Now you got selfish people like you and me. We're often very selfish. 
Sometimes we're selfish, sometimes we're greedy, sometimes we're moody, sometimes we're just fed up. Sometimes we hold on to things and we have a little gunny sack full of irritations that finally build up and then you bump me wrong. And, and sometimes I'm so anxious and it has nothing to do with you, but you bumped into me in a day that I wasn't doing okay and you got my worst me. And when I do it, I see a complex version of me where I'm very sympathetic to the why. I was tired, I was grumpy, I was hurt, so-and-so just... And that's why I behaved the way I did. And you should show me mercy because there's a bigger picture. But when you treat me that way, I simplify my vision of you to where you're just a jerk. You're not complicated and complex with a backstory and a good heart and you mean well. No, you're just a jerk. Who doesn't mean well? So when you take sin into the equation, you got these people, they've encountered Jesus. They're just like us. And Paul says, here's what you're going to need. If you're a Christian, you're going to need this pretty often. You're going to need to know how to suffer the cost of bearing with one another and forgiving one another. And that's not an occasionally, several times a decade. Jesus built it into the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray as a model for daily prayer. Father in heaven, let your name be regarded as holy. Let your kingdom come and let your will be done. Three things on the earth, just like they are in heaven. Your in heaven, your name is being regarded as holy. Your kingdom is fully expressed and your will is being done. But on earth, your name's being treated cheaply. Your kingdom's hardly manifest and your will's rarely being done, even in the lives of the saints. So we're praying that heaven would look more, or I'm sorry, earth would look more like heaven. And then he says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. That's a daily prayer. So receiving and extending forgiveness is just like we, we need food to eat and we need mercy to live and we need to extend mercy or relationships just die. Every relationship, your relationship with God and your relationship with everyone in your life lives by grace and dies by law. You know what, what I mean by law in this context? Things being fair being treated exactly how you should be treated. Your relationship with God and your relationship with everyone around you will either live by grace or die by law. And the more you demand justice, all your relationships will get sour. You'll get bitter at God. You'll get bitter at your spouse. You'll get bitter at your kids. You'll get bitter at your boss. Hebrews 12, 15 says, be careful not to let a root of bitterness grow up among you and it will then defile many. Why does he specify root? Roots are invisible, aren't they? Unforgiveness is almost impossible for you to detect in yourself because you don't feel like you have an unforgiving attitude. You feel like they are a jerk. You don't see, I don't see the ways in which. This is it. I just learned this last night. The word for wrath and the word for wreath, like a Christmas wreath, come from the same Gaelic root. And, so, and the word wraith, a ghost, a twisted spirit. I just said the word. Wrath, wreath, and wraith all come from the same Gaelic word, which means to twist. When we hold on to our grievances with one another, because that's the next Greek word, right? If you, have any, if you have any grievance with the other one, that what happens is when you hold on to those things, you think, I'm fighting for 
truth. I'm fighting for justice. I'm fighting to see things as they should be. But what's really going on is you're being twisted by what you hold on to. So it's interesting, isn't it? A wraith, like in the Lord of the Rings, the, the wraiths, they are 100% living, holding on to something from the past and twisted by it. A ghost in human, in, in like all the narratives, all the stories about ghosts, the ghosts haunt the places in life where they have unresolved issues, right? They can't seem to transition to the next, next plane or next place because there's unresolved pain. It's such a deep, deep thing. They can't let it go. In the stupid show Supernatural, which Pete Roach got me into watching, the way they release ghosts who are stuck here into the next plane is to burn whatever the physical item is that's keeping him here. That's a made-up stupid thing. The real thing that releases us it back into being living things instead of former shells of who we were is forgiveness. In forgiveness. And forgiveness is not passive. Forgiveness is not passive. So many times we say things like, I'm not ready to forgive yet because we still feel the hurt. We still feel the anger. What do you do? You're passively waiting for the feelings to stop? You're to be actively, I'm to be actively choosing to practice forgiveness, not waiting till my feelings change. If you, if you wait till your feelings change, here's what you are going to practice. You'll practice running those people down to your friends. When, the, when their name comes up, you'll run them down to your friends. You'll hold on to your right to dehumanize them so that you can feel justified in not being obligated to love them in relationship. If you hold passively waiting for God to zap you with something, you will actively be rehearsing with your words things and stories that actually cause a deep root to grow in the surf, in, beneath the surface of your heart and you don't see it. I don't see it. Another thing that Jesus says is, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who, we forgive our debtors. What, what is that kind of implying? Because he's not talking about money. In relationship, when you wrong me, when I feel wronged by you, I feel you owe me something. You took something from me or you hurt me. And now I feel like you should be made to suffer in exactly the same way I have suffered. And it's really interesting. When someone you have bitterness against goes through misfortune, you actually feel a sense of relief you feel like, oh good, there is a God of justice. And you find it easier to treat them good again because they've paid back what they took. Oh, you can shake your head, but it's how we are. Unless we practice forgiveness, we will be practicing a kind of one-for-one -one relationship math. And, and we say, I can't forgive because I must have justice. If I forgive and then they just get away with it, what kind of a world would that be? In other words, we feel like our forgiving will make the, our, our forgiving will make the world a less just place, a less fair place. But here's the truth, guys. If I don't forgive, I will be 
a source of injustice in the world. Because my justice isn't eye for eye. It's you knock me this way, and I do it back to you plus three. You hurt my kid, I take your reputation. Right? You hurt my hand, I break your arm. That's humans. So we think that our act of forgiveness would be letting them off the hook. But it's not letting them off the hook. It's letting us out of the cycle of becoming some ghost of a person who's been twisted by the resentment. And, and when we come to each other in acts of forgiveness and the goal, and the goal isn't to restore relationship, I question whether the real forgiveness has happened yet. If when I come to you, it's still to harangue on the issue of the, of the wrong done and to let you know what you need to do to pay me back before you deserve to be in relationship with me. It all might sound very modern and psychologically wise and all that. Lately, I have heard a lot of modern psychobabble in the church. And it ends up making us much less gracious, Christ-like, loving people. It's 15, it's, it's, oh, I don't want to go off on that whole tangent. But when I forgive you before, then it's revealed in the fact that my goal here is to restore relationship. Not to manipulate, not to control you. Are we okay? So Jesus knows, Jesus knows that extending forgiveness and receiving God's forgiveness, ah, there's a key, are crucial to our life in Christ. And Paul knows that the church will never work. It'll never work if regularly forgiving each other, regularly, weekly, as often as the issues come up, and you go, well, does, it, does that mean there's not going to be accountability? Does that mean we're not going to confront stuff? We're just going to like pretend stuff isn't happening? You've read the Gospels, right? You know how Jesus is, right? Do you think it'd be fun to be in relationship with Paul, for example? You think he pulled a lot of punches? Do you think, dude, there would be whole books written about how Paul was an evil, evil narcissist and he hurt my feelings if he was today? Because he straight up tells you what he thinks about your behavior based on what you need to repent to change, to get free of. Just the other week, uh, this week, I heard a woman define love um, in the context of sexual ethics. She said, if you don't accept my definition of what I am, then you are actively committing violence against me. To say you love me but you disagree with me is deception. She says, you disagreeing with me is rejecting who I am because this isn't just my behavior. This is who I really am and you're rejecting who I really am. Therefore, you don't love me unless you agree with me. Well, there goes democracy. You don't love me if you dis... You can't possibly love me if we disagree. How, what a, we're going to create a whole generation of people who can't, who, who, who are not resilient. 
I can be toppled because Kate and I have a disagreement. I can be destroyed and I can go online and I can say she committed violence against me. That she, she, that's what they're saying. That shows such a vulnerability and a brittle spirit. You don't know who you are in God, so you demand that everyone else has to know who you are and agree with who you are because your sense of self is so utterly fragile that you feel violated to have someone view you differently than you view you. I think it's human. And I'm saying Jesus grounds my extending grace to you in my receiving grace from God. I have to find my identity not from people or I will not be able to be a merciful, gracious, forgiving person who can live in any society effectively without accumulating profound resentments. Now, here's another point. When the bank forgives your debt, what happens to the money they lose? Going back to the forgive us our debts as we forgive those who sin against us. Let's say, let's say I default on my mortgage payments and the, bank, and the bank chooses to forgive my whole loan amount. What happens? Ray says, I want to know. Yeah. Ray and Jonathan are like, sign me up for that bank. If somebody else pays off your debt, did the bank forgive your debt? No. But if the bank forgives your debt, go with me a minute. If the bank forgives your debt, who eats the cost? The bank. It should be the bank. Ray's right. We're federally insured. The government does, which goes back to us again on the taxes. Bad metaphor, Tim. Jesus, give me better metaphors next time. Feder FDIC. You're right. That goes back. We paid, our, we paid off our own thing. National deficit. But let's pretend that my metaphor holds. If I forgive you, do you know what it is? It's me saying, I'm going to let that go. I'm going to cancel your debt. So who pays the debt when I forgive you? Don't skip steps, boy. I do. And if I'm not connected to Jesus, my tiny heart, my tiny bank, my little account probably won't have much left to handle it. Uh, isn't that what we're saying when we say, I can't forgive them? When we say, I can't forgive them after what they did, aren't we saying, I don't have the resources in my heart to do it. It's too big of a withdrawal. I won't make it. I won't live it. I won't survive it. Unless, unless we begin to use the same deep well of truth that we used when it came to our forgiveness. How did we find forgiveness? Was it because we had enough in our account? No, we took it to Jesus. And he said, let me pay your debt for you. Guys, what if the same source that is an infinite and overflowing well of love that can bring mercy to our debt? What if that same source is where we can draw enough so that we have what we need to pay the debt of extending forgiveness? You pay the debt when, 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 it's, when you forgive. You are gonna pay a cost. You're gonna pay a bunch of really practical costs. And one of the practical costs is their name comes up in a conversation and you hold, you slap your hand over your mouth and you, and you resist the temptation to run them down to ruin their reputation, to warn everyone about them. 
and instead you pray blessings on them, though it's against the grain of everything in your heart. And slowly over time, that active process of paying that price changes you. Or to put it another way, it doesn't feel natural for you to be led by the Spirit in that matter yet. But over time, you will retrain the muscles of your soul to line up with the truth that's already flowing in your spirit. Can we draw that distinction between our souls and our spirits? Because a lot of us don't draw the distinction and we end up attributing to the Lord things that are coming from our soul. We end up attributing to our spirit things that are coming from our soul. We say things like, I'm in a bad place because we're in tune with our soul. We don't recognize we're not in a bad place because we're not in tune with our spirit. The grace is here right now for you to walk in the fullness of the kingdom, even if your soul is lying to you? Or is it only going to be as good as you're feeling? So, is there a cost to pay down when you extend forgiveness? Yes. Where will you find the resources for your tiny, fragile, weak heart? You will find them in the same place that you find your forgiveness, the, the resources to pay down your need. And, and, and guess what happens when you, when you see you and your enemy, who, by the way, is often your brother or sister, humbled equal before the cross? Remember the story Jesus told, right? That when you don't forgive your brother, you're like the servant who was forgiven a massive multi-million dollar debt, but then he bumps into his friend right after the king releases him from the debt, and his friend owes him 20 bucks, and he strangles him and says, How dare, give me back what you owe me. Then the king says, what in the world are you doing, guys? I canceled this massive debt because there was no way you were going to be paid. And then that's how you treat your brother? There's something about standing before the cross of Jesus and get a vision of our sin and then get a vision of their sin against us. I know it often feels bigger. But in the story Jesus tells, it's millions of dollars versus $20. Some is more than 20, dude. There's stories I've heard with people that just gut me. I weep and I say, God, I, I, I wish this had never happened to them. But I, I refuse to believe that the grace of Jesus is not enough to bring healing to this heart. There's some that have stretched my faith in this, guys. And the disciples' faith, too. Right after this, in Luke's version of this story, Jesus says, I tell you, they say increase our faith. And then he says, if you have faith as, as, small, as, as, as big as a tiny mustard seed, you can command the mountain into the sea. Sometimes the sins against us are the mountains. There is the grace there. Jesus pointing out that if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, what he's really saying is the issue is not the size of your faith. The issue is your willingness to cooperate with it. Again, we don't wait till our soul feels ready. We take control and we exercise our will in the path of the command. Because if we don't, we're actively growing a root of bitterness. We'll be blind to the root because it's subterranean. It's beneath the surface. We don't see the root, but this thing just keeps cropping up in our life over and over. Why? You know, have you ever cut a tree down? Oh, my word, roses. I cut these roses down really to my wife's chagrin. Yeah, see the face? 
Anyone? Exhibit A? No, now she's smiling. Okay. Well, the other face is what I usually see when I cut those roses down. And my logic is they're going to grow back really fast. And her logic is you killed my roses. Oh, I did not kill your roses. Because as lo- you know what I'm saying. As long as the root remains, I haven't killed the roses. As long as the root of holding on to that hurt remains, it's going to keep cropping back up, growing back, sprouting forth. So who in the room feels like, okay, this sermon applies to me? Because I do. There are some things that some of us are scared to pray. Lord, please don't make me go to that person's house and have a talk. Lord, please don't make me ever be in relationship with them again. Lord, please don't make me be scandalously loving like God is. God, please don't make me lay down my life for my enemies the way you laid your life down for me when I was your enemy. Please don't make me have to live like Jesus because he sure had to pay a high price for the treasure that was in front of him. And I'd rather just stay away. And the thing is, the spirit wants to do in you and me what ex- exactly what he did in the person of Jesus when he walked the earth 2,000 years ago, doesn't he? Isn't Jesus what it looks like to be spirit-filled? Isn't Jesus what it looks like to be a Christian? And you go, well, I'm not Jesus. Oh, well, that's clear. No one was arguing that point. We all know that you're not Jesus. We all know that I'm not Jesus. But the goal of this life is to get free. This is not about rules. It's about freedom. This is not about you have to forgive or God's going to be mad. No, no, no. You have to forgive or unforgiveness will eat our lunch. I used to talk about grace only flows in the shadow of the cross. And what I mean is if you can stay in that place where you're seeing yourself through the lens of the cross, you have to also view them through the lens of the cross. And the other day I was like, you know, that's missing something. Because there's the shadow of the cross where his mercy covers and protects us. So we're sheltered by the shadow of the cross. But then there's also the light, the bright, glorious light shining out of the tomb as he's being raised to new life and exalted. So there's something about being sheltered by the cross, but also walking in the light of the resurrection, right? You see what I'm talking about? The explosion of light. It's not an empty tomb in my little vision here. It's, 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 the, it's the tomb of Jesus come to life. And there's, if, if we're going to live in that, it has to be extended. I can't pretend to live in that and not also extend that. Because that's what it will be as a pretense. Praise God, he's a jerk. Those, those, two, converse, those two phrases shouldn't coexist, right? I'm not trying to say that He's not a jerk. And I'm not trying to say he wasn't a jerk to you. And I'm not trying to say that there's not a world full of sin. That's not, that I'm, I'm not trying to say it's not real. I'm trying to say, if Jesus' blood is enough to make it as though we've never sinned, how does the sentence end? Then surely the blood of Jesus is enough to make it as though we've never been sinned against. That's hard for me sometimes to believe. But it's true. It is true. The verse ends by talking about and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts because as members of one body, you've been called to peace. Do you know, I think 
the majority of congregational splits, factions, the, the disunity and the dysfunction in the social unit. When you have individuals who don't have peace, then you're going to have a congregation that socially doesn't have peace. Take it home, it's free. Go ahead and stand.